cell provider may apply, though, so check with your cell provider to make sure. So ready? Here you go. Get a pen. Here's the number. Studio A is 712-432-6958, and Studio B is 716-748-0112. Thank you very much for listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station in the world. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. I guess our music didn't come on, uh, but that's okay. Uh, this is Barb DeLong, your host, and I invite you to step away from the mainstream and gather around us as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey that we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights, covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Tonight we have a special guest. We have Peter Moon with us. Peter is an author and a publisher who is primarily known for his investigation of space-time projects. These concern projects in the past, present, and future that control both time and perception of time. In 1983, he forged an association with scientist Preston Nichols, one of the world's foremost experts in the world of electromagnetic phenomena, who had been involved in the strange experiments at the Montauk Air Force Station on Long Island, which included time manipulation. Sean, are you there? Barely. Okay, sorry about that. Are we on air, Sean? I can hear you clearly, Barbara. I can hear me too. Um, I'm hoping I'm hoping we're on air. Let me get back to introducing you. Um, Peter uh, was involved in um, the Montauk project, and uh, that involved time manipulation. Ma- manipulation. Um, okay. Good question. I, I would assume we're on air if he hasn't done anything crazy. Um, so Peter is going to take us on a trip. He's going to start with 1895 and H. Gene Wells and the time machine to 1943, the Philadelphia experiment to the 1950s that, that went into the, um, Montauk project. And from there, he's going to take us to Romania and Transylvania and, and an adventure there. And um, it's quite a trip, Peter, and uh, it's a fascinating trip. You want to explain to us how we get from point A to point B to point C or, or more, more, more basically A squared plus B squared equals C squared? 
Well, um, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, the first thing is, is it all possible to establish that we are indeed on the air? Um, I would say that we are on the air. He, Sean hasn't typed me anything. I that's, can. That's that's the issue. If if uh, if if we're on the air, can he hear us? Um. Yes, sure. we're live. Okay. We're live. So we've established that we're on the air. Very good. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now I can feel like I'm not talking to air. Um, the first thing I want to do is is correct a couple of the statements that you made, uh, um, and one of them was that. Uh, and I don't know if you read incorrect copy or if you misread it, but in any case, um, it said that I forged an association with Preston Nichols in 1983. That's not accurate. It was in 1990 when I met him, and I actually forged a, a partnership or agreement with him in 1991. Okay. Um, the, the other thing was that I was involved in the Montauk Project. It was said, no, I was not involved in the Montauk Project. Preston. Oh no no no! You wrote the, you you helped him write the book. Right, but I was not involved in the project itself. Those are just right. things I wanted to clarify. Now mm -hmm. you wanted to take us back to H.G. Uh, Wells. Now H.G. <laughs> Wells, okay, and and how he fits into this. Of course, H.G. Wells is a very uh, famous author, uh, man of letters, and multiple talents who wrote a book in 1898 called The Time Machine. And The Time Machine is a very readable book that was eventually made into a movie in, I think, 1960 um, with Rod Taylor and Yvette Mimiu. Mm -hmm. It is the story of a man who discovers a time machine, how to build a time machine, and he travels into the past, into the future, and uh, has adventures in time. Now, H.G. Wells was a member of a, what was called the Fabian Society, uh, also the Roundtable Society. He was a part, he was a British elitist, and he belonged to secret societies, and he had uh, mysterious connections. He was also involved in what became... Uh, all of these societies uh, morphed into the Tavistock Institute, which is renowned for its being a uh, center of mind control and social manipulation. It's part of how the British Empire um, runs itself. The British Empire being the most powerful organization, uh, you know, creating nationalism so all countries have flags and are nations they, they weren't necessarily countries it converted the whole globe into nationalities so anyway H.G. Wells um, he writes this book now according to the Montauk story slash legend which definitely has some teeth to it um, he was friends with a couple of characters known as the Wilson brothers and the Wilson brothers, I've not been able to find any historical reference to them. I'm beginning to understand more and more why that is the case. But the Wilson brothers were, uh, according to Preston Nichols, uh, the first manufacturers of scientific instruments in Great Britain. 
And they were had started a company in this regard with uh, uh, the father of Aleister Crowley, the infamous magician who identified himself as the B666. And so H.G. Wells was also friends with these, uh, these Wilson brothers who were exploring time manipulation, time travel, and whatnot. Now, this, the Wilson brothers uh, were related to a, according to legend story, which is covered in my book, Montauk Revisited, which I just uh, published a, a short five-minute synopsis video on. You can go to digitalmontauk.com or, uh, and, and go to our website, our new website, and you can uh, find an offer for uh, Montauk Revisited. You can also go to our YouTube channel, Montauk Revisited, uh, Peter Moon. You should be able to get to our YouTube channel and watch it. But in any case... Um, 1943 was an experiment, uh, the Philadelphia experiments with the Cameron brothers, Edward Cameron and Duncan Cameron. And this is when the Navy made a ship disappear. And when it disappeared, the Cameron brothers uh, were very conscious of what was going on and jumped off the ship. And according to the story, ended up at Montauk Point in 1983. And in 1983, uh, there was a whole project going on that was tied to the Philadelphia experiment. Now, I usually don't, you know, present the story this way, but I am because you uh, asked for it this way. Okay. So basically, um, all space-time projects are connected by their very nature. Now, uh, the, the Philadelphia experiment involved Edward Cameron and Duncan Cameron, um, Edward Cameron went back to 1943. Duncan Cameron remained in 1983, but he began to rapidly age and die. And before he died, they put him into another body with the same father, uh, the father being Alexander Duncan Cameron Sr. And the body was, also, was a, a different mother, and he was Duncan Cameron, Alexander Duncan Cameron Jr., but a, a different one. And he grew up, participated in the Montauk Project, and in quote-unquote real life, he met Preston Nichols in 1984, and they figured out through their own experiences that the, they, that Preston Nichols and Duncan Cameron were two characters known as the Wilson Brothers. Marcus Wilson and Preston Wilson and Preston and Duncan Preston Nichols and Duncan Cameron were involved in the Montauk projects covering an awful lot of ground here. But I, what I will say about the Wilson brothers, um, Preston told me that he had initially learned about the Wilson brothers, not from the psychic readings that himself and Duncan had done, but through his mother and his mother, uh, had known the niece of the Wilson brothers at, uh, Skidmore College, upstate New York. And she was part of a psychic group with uh, the niece of the Wilson brothers who talked about her uncles. And I got to uh, interview uh, Mrs. Nichols before she died. 
and she asked to meet me. She'd met me before, but she asked to see me um, when I was at Preston's house very early in the morning for a radio show we did in uh, the early 90s. And she, she wanted to thank me for doing all, helping Preston, as so many people had done the opposite of help him in his life. And she then told me uh, about the Wilson brothers, that she did indeed. It was almost as if she wanted to verify that for me. And I was, mm -hmm. Preston told me that was the last coherent conversation she had had in some time and would ever have, uh, was that one about, so something came through verifying uh, that this was the case. I also had occasion to discover and write a letter to a bastard son of Aleister Crowley, Amato Crowley, who was a very uh, interesting and controversial character. Uh, I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back and uh, asking him about the Wilson brothers. And he said he did recall his father talking about the Wilson brothers. And he was the one who said they were friends with HG Wells. He also uh, provided another clue. He said that they were uh, sterile, as he recalled. They were sterile. Uh, he didn't know them. He knew about them. Uh, sterility indicates is a symptom of what is known as a virgin birth or magical birth, which is a whole nother story uh, that I don't know that we're going to digress into. But, <laughs> but what it was suggestive of is a uh, an attempt by magicians to create what is known as a moon child. Uh -huh. And just while we're on this topic, because the Montauk Project, which is about time travel, you cannot escape occultism. But the virgin birth, sometimes you'll look at magicians talking about the great work, the great work. Well, one of the, the great work is really all about birthing a messiah which is also known as a moon child. Uh, the, perhaps the most exalted expression of the moon child, at least in modern earth literature, is the character we know as the Christ from the New Testament. Um, his, he has a virgin, he is the product of a virgin birth um, through the Holy Spirit, in a scenario that mimics UFO abductions or UFO, you know, women having alien babies, it mimics that. Or maybe those alien babies, babies mimic the, the whole perfection of a virgin birth. If you study the history uh, of the character, the, the, and I can't call her a historical character, but I can call her a character who appears in literature of history, uh, Mary um, Benamon, Benjamin, Mary Benjamin is actually her name of the tribe of Amon, mm -hmm. Ben Amon. <clears throat> and the, she appears associated with the Amazons. Her house and burial site is in the, near the temple of Diana, in a very specific place in, in what is now Turkey. So she's associated with the Amazons. And of course, the Amazons by tradition could have a virgin birth. I go into this uh, quite deeply in the book, uh, Montauk Book of the Living, the biology of the virgin birth, the plausibility of the virgin birth, as well as um, 
we know Athena was also uh, somebody who was born of a birth without normal insemination, born out of the head of her father, Zeus. Uh-huh. But she was also a virgin, and her uh, temple, the Parthenon, uh, is where we get the word parthogenesis. And parthogenesis means virgin birth. So this concept of a virgin birth is very deeply embedded into um, mythology and and history as well, because the Amazons are historical characters. Um, so anyway, while the questions you asked me kind of forced me to give a lot of, sounded like a lot of the things I was saying are kind of uh, not too grounded, there is a lot of teeth to them, and we can find the ground if we search deep enough, which a lot of my books address. Oh, so, absolutely. No, no, it doesn't. I, sound... I'm addressing this to the audience. Some people don't care uh, whether I ground it or not. I certainly do. Um, but I, I generally don't approach it from this angle. However, um, so how we get from the Wilson brothers in uh, the late 1800s to the 1943 to 1983, what it is is the whole space-time continuum is laced with different projects. And, and of course, we have occultism riding along the back of this. We have, as appears in Montauk Revisited, the book, there is uh, uh, Amato Crowley also wrote to me and told me that his father participated in an occult ritual on August 12th, 1943, where uh, he stuck his son... Amato, which is not his real name, uh, legal name, through a donut-shaped stone in Cornwall in an area called Menatol and stuck him through with an occult ritual which created what he said was a line of rough water that went straight to Montauk Point. Now, there are cables that run straight from the what's called Land's End, the tip of Cornwall, England, that runs straight to Montauk Point. We're talking about telephone cables, telegraph okay. cables, whatever, whatever they are. And this is a long connection that you will see in industrial connections, but also this was a magical connection in 1943. And I've also uh, heard confirmation from people that they talked to people who were aware of that ritual or who had been there, that it was indeed real. What were you going to ask me? No, I, I was going to say that that I don't see how you could possibly have this work without um, a flavoring of the occult, without without spiritual slash psychic inter, intervention and and cooperation. Because while the science of it is absolute, in order to really enhance it to the level of human consciousness, you have to have that spiritual psychic connection. Well, there's no question of that. And the Montauk project itself was laced with occultism and Mm -hmm. that was of the most negative kind. Um, So yes. And this is most definitely a factor. Now my most recent work um, has involved the science of time travel. And I've released a series of videos, time travel theory explained, which are free and available to anybody who wants to go to digitalmontalk.com and access them. 
This is pure math and science. So at the same time, while I'm, I'm talking uh, occult subjects here, there is science that, that runs right alongside of it. Now, in, when you're dealing with this, occultism is a senior um, function to science. This is where we get the word metaphysics, meta being above or senior to physics, metaphysics. Mm -hmm. So this is what we are indeed um, dealing with. So the Montauk Project was an attempt to connect the mind of man to computers. Because in 1943, when the Philadelphia experiment occurred, there was tragedy, particularly in the mental arena of the sailors aboard, but it, it affect them, affected them physically and mentally, and of course, spiritually. And they were, uh, those who survived, um, many of them were taken to Camp Upton in Long Island, and Camp Upton was a World War I um, military base that was made somewhat famous by Irving Berlin, who wrote a song in a musical review called Yip Yip Yapank. <laughs> Yapank, Long Island is where Camp Upton was. Yapank, um, after World War I, uh, I don't think it saw much action until the Germans began to move in in the 1930s. And Yapank became the biggest uh, enclave of Germans in America, and it eventually became the biggest enclave of Nazis outside of Germany in the 1930s. And they had goose-stepping, they had rallies, and it became a, a very controversial... They would also have rallies in Madison Square Garden in Manhattan, but uh, the biggest enclave of Nazis in the world was right on Long Island in... Uh, Yapank. Now, they took the sailors to Camp Upton, which was right near this Nazi enclave. When I say right near it, we're talking about a very short distance. Um, and they, what they did is they studied these people and trying to find out what was going wrong. Now, right also adjacent to this area is Camp Upton eventually became Brookhaven National Laboratories, the premier uh, atomic laboratory in the United States. And it was uh, not run by the Department of Energy as it is now. It was run by Associated Universities, which was a quasi-government uh, think tank. But it wasn't government. It was a bunch of university professors. It had no real uh, teeth to it politically, but it was very influential. And this is where the Montauk Project was hatched in Brookhaven Laboratory uh, in an attempt to connect the mind of man to computers. First off, to find out why they could not survive uh, experiments in time, why their minds would go askew mm -hmm. uh, when they were subject to other dimensionality. And they began to link their minds to computers early computers, because the early computers in America were developed by John von Neumann, who was the, uh, you know, project manager of the Philadelphia Experiment and also uh, what became the Montauk Project. So you had 
this study of, of being able to read a person's mind, uh, connecting the human mind, radio, frequency, and computers. So this was basically reading the mind of man, controlling the mind of man, and recording it in some form of, some form of binary digits, which is what a computer is. So uh, this also involved amplifying what was in the mind, amplifying by getting a reading of what was in the mind and then amplifying that signal, much as you would amplify the sound of a piece of music. So this was uh, pretty much put together in 1958, but it was moved out to Montauk eventually, and the, the project really got going in the early 70s. Uh, because they had a big radar dish out there um, that was over half the size of a football field. And it had the exact, uh, what was called the window frequency to the human consciousness, 435 megahertz. So they began to experiment on influencing the moods of people, the emotions of people. This is at uh, Montauk Point, Long Island, the easternmost point on the South Fork of Long Island. And they would they would change the moods of animals. They would change the moods of people. Animals would be erratic. People would be erratic. And this is covered in the book, The Montauk Project's Experiments in Time. Now, eventually, the influence of the mind was able, where, where it could even got to the point where, according to the stories, that uh, the individual who was subject to this mind amplification would be in a device called the Montauk chair, where he could manifest something in, into matter, like manifest a, manifest a piece of bread, manifest a can of beer. And then eventually these things might manifest out of time. So then this began a window into time to where they began to ma manipulate time. And this is where the time experiments began to take place. And of course, the lesson of the Montauk project is the experiments become bigger and bigger and more grandiose. And it's not unlike the story of the Tower of uh, Babel or Babel in the Bible, where they're building uh, a tower to God and they get too close and then everything falls apart. The language is scrambled uh -huh. and we're living in this paradigm. The Montauk Project was very similar because they were monkeying with the powers of creation. They were beginning to manipulate time and their influence got too big and powerful and things got out of hand and that was uh, well weren't they also using young children that were that were um, spiritually not not spiritually but but were psychically talented and gifted well, I don't know if they were really psychically talented or gifted. They were psychically manipulated. Okay. They were used and they were abused because one of the techniques to open up the paranormal abilities was through uh, torture. In other words, getting a person out of his body. The, the whole... Um, term OBE out of body experience is something that's very familiar with what's called the near death crowd or the NDE crowd, the near death experiencers. 
Now, people often have these experiences of going out of their body when they're almost dead. It could be from an illness. It could be from an accident. Um, I know many of these people, and they often will attract or discover psychic abilities by reason of these near-death experiences. So at Montauk, they would bring about the near-death experience by sometimes by just experiments, but sometimes by manipulation or abuse of the individual concerned. Uh So it's it's really hard to call those kids gifted or psychic. A better word would be traumatized. Okay. And and there is a whole psychic trauma uh, that goes with what you might call a Montauk experiencer. Well, yeah, and I've heard interviews with a couple of them, and they they definitely were traumatized. There's no doubt about it. Now, Duncan Cameron was one of those that took took part in the um, experiments. Yeah, he was the main uh, character that was utilized. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Because, you know, I I just... um, I, for, I, for, I forget where I saw it, but, but it spoke about how it was usually young, younger boys, but although girls were, were a part of it as well, I guess, and they, right around puberty. So, and that's a sensitive time for, for any child. Well, indeed it is. And this tradition is not new to Montauk. It goes back into ancient cultures, including the Eleusinian Mysteries, uh, when people, at, I mean, even back into Rome, as late as Rome, where they would have the uh, um, Lupercalia, where all the pubescent kids would come out and uh, there would be somebody dressed up like a, you know, like a goat or a pan and would, and would you know, hit the, hit the young girls with the, uh, the straps. I think it was wolf fur or, and, and to, to make them fertile. And, and it was like, this was the beginning of Valentine. What we know is Valentine's day. Now they tear up the young kids and there were also initiations Yeah, took place. And, and sometimes they were uh, not as fertility oriented as what I just said. They might be uh, manipulation involved or whatnot. Mhm. Okay. Well, so so these these kids were 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 tortured, and and in that torture that created you know then subjected to the mind control, which in turn created a portal in time to a certain degree. Well, to a certain degree is 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 the key, and and one of the things is yes, the Montauk Project uh, was about trauma, and one of the, I guess what you'd call booby traps of uh, talking about the Montauk Project is the trauma. And people will latch onto that trauma, and they will begin to feed off of it and amplify it and begin to relive it, live it, rather than to... uh, dissolve it well this was initially 
their initial purpose was mind control. How did it then fold over into time travel? Well, you know, it's hard to say what the initial purpose was. What you had was you had is all this thing fundamentally comes down to power. And you had the power to control the mind, the power to manipulate time. The power to manipulate time was done through the observer in this particular project. Technology was utilized. The observer is a very key role. But in this case, when you can manipulate time, when you can manipulate events, you have power. So it's all about certain uh, characters, entities, whatever you want to say, jockeying for power. This is what it all comes down to. Of course, you can't see the real characters that are jockeying for the power. What you do when you investigate the Montauk Project, like I did, is you come up with uh, correspondences to the Antichrist. 666 would appear with great frequency. The names Cameron and Wilson, the families of Cameron Wilson, are all associated with Aleister Crowley and the Beast 666. And this, this is part of Montauk Revisited. Um, it, it, it's quite a, quite a story. So what you're doing is you're coming up with uh, the power of what might be called ultimate darkness um, juxtaposed against the opposite. So what you have here is a uh, dichotomy of light and dark. Exactly. And people will polarize into the darkness very, very quickly and very easily. And this is um, unfortunate. But then again, you see this in society. You will see people, people polarize into being anti this or anti that. And people getting vitriolic over politics um, over situations that they really aren't going to do anything out about, but they get very angry and they polarize. And, and this is, of course, um, not in the best interest of the individual. No, not at all. So, so you, you became acquainted with Preston Nichols, who I must say, um, from everything I've seen and read about him, a brilliant, brilliant man, but also a very sweet man. Well, <clears throat> that's uh, certainly that's one aspect of him. Um, some people aren't so uh, generous <laughs> in, in their assessment of Preston Nichols. But yes, he does have all of those attributes, indeed. But, but as is the case with a lot of brilliant people, he doesn't write as well as as he would like to. So that's, that's how you came into the picture to help. Preston, no, Preston is not a writer. In fact, um, there's one uh, piece of writing. It's a scientific piece of writing that does a, a scientific analysis of a device called the radio sound. And he did that himself. And he told him, I think it took him like a ridiculous amount of time to do it. But it, I mean, you know, because his gift is not, um, Writing. He also does not necessarily speak in a linear fashion. I would find that I would have to, you know, I would record 
his uh, sessions with me and then I would type them out and then I would often find that I'd kind of have to, when I'd write the book, kind of start at the back and, and go backwards, you know, and then rewrite it all. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, we'll sort of start at the end and then kind of work his way back to the beginning, the way he would talk. He does not speak in a linear fashion uh, to, to not, I mean, sometimes he does, but, but by and large, when he would talk about this, it was a very complicated series of events. And I had to, I spent a lot of time descrambling uh, events and circumstances to put it into a as coherent a fashion is in, excuse me, to put it in as coherent a uh, format as possible. And of course, I had to ask him a lot of questions mm-hmm. and, and, and learn these things. Uh, he is definitely a genius, one of the foremost experts in electromagnetics in the world. I have found that truly, really brilliant people have trouble speaking sequentially. Because um, their mind doesn't work that way. Well, ideally, a mind should work with a, a blend of both sides. And that, that is the key. And what I have tried to do, um, we, have, we also have a time scientist, David Anderson, who is very different than Preston. Um, he can speak in a very orderly fashion. When he begins to talk about um, science and present the more subtle concepts of the science, it can sometimes... Um, go over the heads of people. Don't you feel in a way that you've been given the two sides of the same issue? You know, you, you Preston Nichols, who, you know, there's there's the occult and everything there. And then with David Anderson, there's the absolute science. And it's beautiful. Well, yes, Preston has science too. Um, but his science is much more multi-layered it's not mm-hmm. david's is not and we we only know we only know from david what he gives us and what i was going to say is that i've spent a lot of time um simplifying uh some of the concepts that david has on his website if you have uh x degree of acumen you can go on his website andersoninstitute.com and you can read that stuff and it'll all make sense to you. Uh, however, few people have been able to, to make sense out of it to, to the degree that I, that's why I have uh, put these videos out. I first wrote a paper, which is also available at the website digitalmontauk.com on uh, time travel theory or the math and physics of time. And that simplified uh, some of what he wrote. And he was so happy with it that he asked my blessing to take it and, and distribute it elsewhere when he would speak at universities. I said, well, certainly. Um, and then I, I took it a step further uh, and, and last uh, November started creating these videos, which took a long time to produce. Time Travel Theory Explained, you spend months and months and basically you've produced about 45 minutes of, of videos to, to make people and they can just consume them real quickly. As you, you have uh, read, watched them yourself, and it takes, sometimes you've got to go through them again, but you, when you get through these videos, you'll understand um, that time travel is within the boundaries of mathematics and physics. Oh, absolutely. And 
what what I found fascinating, and and I did have to repeat it two or three times just to first to understand the concept, and then of course with everything that I do to relate it to. <clears throat> excuse me, the allergies have gotten me. To relate it to not only the understanding of the fact that there is indeed a machine that can um, th- that actually can incorporate time travel into its usefulness. But, but to the, the concept of moving in time forward and back um, is something that people who are psychic do do on some level going to another level of consciousness. So, so trying to um, put that into the mix as well was, was really rather fascinating for me. Well, yes, in, in time, uh, as David has said in... in uh least one of his videos he says and he's this is a quote it's not his origination it, time is a teacher that eats all its pupils <laughs> and and this is from uh chronos the, the the greek or the roman roman god was saturn the greek god was chronos which is where we get the word chronometer and, mm-hmm. uh, but chronos would basically eat his children and he was overthrown by uh, Zeus, and Zeus became, also known as Jupiter, became the king of the gods. But before that, you know, Saturn had overthrown his father. He castrated uh, Uranus because Uranus was a compulsive creator. This is why uh, this is he's symbolically castrated because he was just creating, 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 creating. So he literally uh, took this the side. Uh, the, you know, the Grim Reaper's sickle, which Saturn which represents the Grim Reaper, and he, he cut his nuts off. And this was to stop him from creating incessantly. So Saturn, or Kronos, was structure, orderliness, and linear time. And these, of course, are archetypal concepts. But um, he would eat, uh, Saturn would eat all its his babies, so uh, the mother goddess let Zeus escape and he later overthrew Saturn. And of course, all these gods would be restored. After they would be overthrown uh, and killed, they would be resurrected and put back into the heavens because they did have a role to play. So in any case, uh, time is an adversarial uh, force when it comes to uh, living beyond one's allotted means as a human being. So time would be the ultimate adversary. Now, when we take the word adversary, this is uh, the same word as Satan. So you could say that you could equate time uh, in this regard, Kronos, Saturn, Satan, Satan, Saturn. It's, It's an adversary. So... This is what one is seeking to overcome. Okay. This is the ultimate challenge of the human condition if one is going to transcend the human condition. Uh, Most people are pretty content not to transcend the human condition. It is beyond, not only beyond their capability, it is beyond their vision. So 
that's what we're dealing with. Yet there, uh, I guess, hope springs eternal. <laughs> it does. And yet the human mind is an amazing thing. And, and there are, I mean, to think about transcending time, to travel in time, to go back in time or forward in time is, is something that, that most people from time to time will daydream about. But, but David has done more than daydream. Well, yes, he has. And I will add that the, the human mind is timeless, formless, and infinite in its nature. Timeless, formless, and infinite in its nature. And it has the capacity um, to be timeless, formless, and infinite. So, yes, uh, and David has certainly applied his mind to create what is known as a time reactor. And if one has the a patience to get through the first seven videos in the series, Time Travel Theory Explained, which are all free, one can go uh, and subscribe to the subscriber website. You can subscribe for free. Uh, there is a, you know, you can watch eight and nine if you want to subscribe monthly for $13 a month. Uh, and you can subscribe for one month and end at the end of that one month if you want. Or you can subscribe for the year for $89, which is about seven and a half dollars a month. So anyway, and see the, the patent for the time reactor uh, with the patent filing, uh, a brief overview of it. And then the next video in the series, number nine, is a technical uh, layman's term description of how the time reactor works. And that's perhaps one of the most exciting. Now, the uh, I, I hope over time uh, that I can you know, get enough subscribers to, to release all of this stuff to everybody, uh, to show it and to demonstrate. And in, in some ways, uh, you know, maybe it needs to be released in a slow time release because, you know, we had the website hacked the other day and uh, this was, was frustrating because I had to repost so much. It took a lot of uh, legwork. So this, this stuff is very sensitive uh, to certain people. And of course, the, the patent for the time reactor, it's, it's, I used to post it on my website so anybody could look at it, but then it would disappear. Then I posted it in my book, The White Bat. So now it's a part of the Library of Congress. There's thousands of copies out there. My book, The White Bat, The Alchemy of Writing. Um, and one can see it there. I have a chapter on it. But uh, I found out that, that putting it out Created a, I got a counterattack for it. So now it's, uh, and and the time and the patent when David filed it, it's got the the, fat, the the filing number and all that. It it was sequestered, which means that you have to have a certain classification, security classification, to look at it if you go into the government files. So when you patent something that gives. Uh, virtually free energy, which this does, I say virtually free, um, you, you become either assassinated or you become partnered with the government. And in this case, David is a partner. Is The government are his partners on some level. I don't uh -huh. know to what. It's not something he can really talk about. His partners 
Um, and he's always, he, he planned to do a whole lot of videos by this time, but it never happens. So eventually deferred to me and not because he told me to do it, but because I decided to do it. Well, when he, um, this, this machine that he has the patent for, one of the amazing parts of it is that it doesn't, when it is running, it creates more energy than it uses. In, in, in essence, it is harvesting energy from the, um, from the earth, from, from the energy that is around the earth. And that, and that energy could, could supply the world for thousands of years without, without hurting the earth in any way, shape, or form. This is correct, and this is one of uh, many new uh, inventions that have been hitting the, uh, the Facebook wires, if not the news wires. And, of course, this might be uh, the most efficient of all of them. But in any case, there's, uh, there's so many games that go on in politics. Now, as part of this new website, I'm... I'm working on two new books that I'm writing, and I say I write them chapter by chapter. Each book has a few chapters and an introduction. And the one, one of the books is called Stardust and Initiation in Time, which focuses on not only uh, the, the quantitative aspects of time, which we've just been discussing, but also the qualitative aspects of time. There was a, another Greek god named Kairos, which is very much related to uh, the word Cairo, which we're familiar with Egypt. But Kairos has to do with quality of time. So the character in quality of time, Kairos was the god of opportunity. So he had a lock, one lock of hair, a bald head and one lock of hair. Then that one lock of hair meant that you were to grab it when he went by to seize it because opportunity is fleeting. So if you have a chance to, uh, to get rich, it, it may be very fleeting. So it's not going to be sitting there waiting for you all the time. And when I go back to my involvement in the Montauk project or writing it, it was almost, if I look back at all the situations that opened up for me to be able to do that, the industry situations, my own personal situation, everything lined up for me to seize that opportunity and to do it. I could have not have done it 10 years later, 10 years earlier, uh, probably not even five years later. It well, you, the door. Um, the structure of the industry was such, the book industry changed rapidly before uh, three years after I got involved in this. And it began changing more and more to the point where the book industry has atrophied uh, to a considerable amount. And I, I'm very uh, happy and proud that I've been able to survive it. But uh, because most of the people that were either in the industry or getting into the industry at that time are no longer around. There well, are- you, you use the term synchronicity frequently. And I can see how your life has been a, a flow of synchronicities that, that is profoundly unusual. 
It is profoundly unusual, um, and I would say that some of these synchronicities um, would seem to be by happenstance, and some of them are very much directed and orchestrated by myself, not so much that I know it's going to happen, but I will look down a hole that uh, offers me uh, offers me the opportunity to experience more synchronicity. Now, the reason it's unique um, is because I am actually dealing with the subject of time. And you say a lot of people are dealing with the subject of time. We're all dealing with the subject of time. But what I'm trying to do here, and have had, uh, I, I guess you might say, uh, an underappreciated but remarkable degree of success with codifying it and grounding it uh, into human understanding. Um, so this, this is the whole point. Is In other words, uh, and I'm also experiencing it as well and learning about uh, about phenomena in such a way that it just was not clearly understood. I was going going to go back uh, to what I was saying. I was writing this book about the character of quality time. The other book that I'm in progress on is a book called um, it's a book about L. Ron Hubbard, who was also of the Wilson lineage, and it's called L. Ron Hubbard: The Tao of insanity, Tao being T-A-O, the Chinese word for the way or the mysterious principle of the universe. And basically that book is looking at Hubbard's life, who I used to work for um, personally, and looking at it from the prospect of power, because he was somebody who um, sought, obtained, and exercised power. And he taught about power. He was also a teacher of power. So, uh, unfortunately, power politics is how the world operates. And it's very selfish. It's very self-serving. And it will attempt to limit people's understanding in an effort to maintain its own power. So this is why we have these unfortunate reactions towards uh, cheap or free energy, such as that can be produced by the time reactor. So political science is very much a part of the uh, character and nature of time, particularly as time can be influenced. So one must study politics. I learned this from my involvement in the Scientology movement. I had a pretty, I guess what you call, senior or elevated position, much like a staff officer in the military, like somebody who worked for the Joint Chiefs of Staff in, in, in the Scientology hierarchy. In other words, I was not necessarily uh, um, in susceptible to what the rank and file had to deal with. And I had a perspective, a command perspective from that organization. And of course, a lot of that involved power. My own personal power in the organization 
wasn't, you know, wasn't like an exaggerated uh, sort of situation. You know, I minded my P's and Q's and I, uh, but I, I had an opportunity to, to learn a lot about uh, power. And I, I always paid attention to the politics. I was not interested in becoming a politically powerful uh, Scientologist or a politically powerful anything. This was not anything I was particularly interested in. Um, I, I thought such a position has more liabilities than uh, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, assets. <clears throat> now, Peter, we're coming close to the top of the hour here. I don't want. I I want to go into the the machine a lot more, but I I want to start clean when we get to the top. When we get to the other side of our break. Well, I just um, su- summarize it by saying that, yes, power is a, is a big factor in dealing with time, the study of time, and any of the uh, technology of time, which is what we've been discussing. Yeah, it's, unfortunately, we're ruled by time right at the moment. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's, it's an exciting prospect the fact that there actually is a time machine. Well, yes, this is the horizon of, of consciousness because time can ultimately change events and circumstances. And so when you see all this AI crap that's being produced, you can overcome it. We'll be back in three to five minutes. And this is Nightlight, and uh, <clears throat> we're on revolutionradio.com. And if you like what you hear, we're at revolutionradio at freedomslips.com. And if you like what you hear, please help endorse our efforts and airtime by visiting the station's support page and making a donation. From the station owner to all levels of management, the entire production crew, and every host, we all work without compensation of any kind except, of course, for the joy of being a part of a very unique and special station, one that supports a true sense of freedom. Any donation, even a small one, is greatly appreciated and keeps freedom ever-present out there. For those who seek independent thought and new paradigms and philosophies. So, Peter, you met um, David Anderson actually because of Preston Nichols and the Montauk Project. That's correct. And that took you on an amazing journey. That's correct. I met David on August 11th, 1999. He was already subscribing to uh, my newsletter, the Montauk Pulse. Um, He was collecting all sorts of information that he could on time travel. And he had a time travel research center called the Time Travel Research Center, um, on Long Island, not, you know, less than an hour from where I lived. And he showed up at a meeting one night and he had just returned from the country of Romania where he had been lecturing at a camp called Atlanticron. Atlanticron is the camp of artists, writers, and scientists who've been, uh, just had their 25th anniversary a couple of years ago. And they've been meeting on an island in the Danube in southeast 
Romania, which is Eastern Europe. It's just a stone's throw from the Black Sea. You can, it's a, the, the Black Sea is 40 minute drive from where this is. And basically David was very interested in getting me to Romania because he saw, thought there were some very interesting people there that I might like to meet. And I thought his interest in getting me to Romania was sort of unusual. Uh, but in any case, we talked about uh, his research at the time where he was, uh, had a, he was making uh, time slow down or speed up in what would be uh, the size of a self-contained field about the size of a soccer ball. And he could slow time down or speed it up. And my early reportings on this were very, uh, I guess what you'd say about that. But I mean, when he first came into my life, I put it on page three of my newsletter. That's about how much, you know, importance I gave it uh, because it was at a stage that was very, uh, I guess what you'd say, undeveloped in terms of, okay, well, we were talking about the Montauk project, which was big movements in time as, as things developed, um, he disappeared for a while. And then he in eventually invited me to Romania in 2008. Uh, at the same time, right after I had just made a contractual agreement with a publisher in Romania who had published my books in Romanian language, uh, and we worked out a contract to publish a book that he had attracted from a member of the Romanian Secret Service, Radu Sinemar, who had read the Montauk Project in Romanian and says, how would you like to publish this book? And this is a book that I published in English. It's called Transylvanian Sunrise. And it's about a uh, chamber that was discovered beneath the Romanian Sphinx in 2003, August of 2003. Uh, right at the same time period that the uh, Montauk project happened in 1983, August, and August 1943, the Philadelphia experiment happened. So we were all waiting what was going to happen in August of 2003. Well, there was a blackout in New York, uh, a heavy blackout in August of, of 2003. There was also the opening of a chamber beneath the the Sphinx in Romania, there's a Sphinx in Romania, and this had all sorts of incredible technology in it. It was opened by a joint team of Romanians and Americans, and after this point, you will see in the newspapers and in history that the Romanians and the Americans became staunch allies, Romania becoming a part of NATO. Um, America has now has bases in Romania uh, and Romania now has the hugest part, largest particle accelerator in the world, but it's virtually not reported. Uh, the only report I saw it on was on a sort of a blog of Joseph Farrell. I don't know how he found out about it, but he reported on it. Of course, I found out about it when I was there in May of 2014. And I was told by uh, the woman who picked me up, she says, the, the vice president and the CIA director are following you. She says, she was in the Romanian you know, military. And I said, what do you mean they're following me? She says, they're coming here and they're opening up this particle accelerator in Transylvania. Oh, really? And uh, 
Yeah, they were all over the news in Romania. But you, you wouldn't hear about it here. So uh, what that particle accelerator does, I cannot tell you. Is it related to defense? Yes. Uh, is it related to time? I don't know. Uh, there's no reason to believe it is. There's no reason to believe it's not. But in any case, um, the uh, this chamber beneath the Sphinx contains technology that if you put your hand over a table, it would read out your DNA. If you put it closer to the table, it would read it out in molecular form, closer yet, atomic form. If you put your hand over another part of the table, it would read out, it would show you a species. and would also show you a star system and a planet where this species came from. If you put it over another part of the table, it would show you another planet and another star system and another species. And if you put your hands simultaneously over two parts of the table, it would show you a hybridization of the species. So this was what you would call a data a bank for DNA and all, excuse me, all potentials of DNA in the universe is, is what it was presented by. At this time, the chamber had only been explored for about six weeks by the end of uh, the book Transylvanian Sunrise. And of course, there was a projection hall which had a recorded history of the Earth. So you could go and watch the recorded history of the Earth, and it would summarize the history of the Earth, and it would also be bioresonant. So it would conform to your mind patterns and your whatever you kind of put into it, it would feed back to you. So you might see different aspects of history than I would. Um, and the history cut off around four or 500 AD. They didn't know why at the time. And then there were three tunnels in the projection hall, one leading to similar installations in Tibet, one leading to a similar installation in Egypt. So th this is a summary of what was discovered in Romania. Now, I was going to Romania in 2008 uh, under the impression that David... Uh, would know about these things because he sort of alluded to on the phone. He says, oh, I know what you're talking about, but I don't want to talk about that on the phone. We'll talk about it when we get to Romania. When we got to, go, got to Romania, he didn't want to talk about anything. And he finally was under a gag order, he said, because he was going back into the time travel business. He had he got out of the time travel business after 9-11. And... Uh, um, he, he said he, he shut down the time travel research center in Long Island and sort of backed out of it. There was a research center in New Mexico, which he said he divested himself of association with, but that he, you know, re, reobtained his ownership or reasserted it in about 2010. And he began to actively, uh, talk about time travel. He went on the radio and announced that uh, he could now send people back into time and that the capabilities of, of his time reactor were such that uh, it just had incredibly advanced in the uh, 10 years since I'd originally met him. 
had he actually sent people back in time at that point? We put people in the time reactor and they'd experienced, uh, yes, they'd experienced uh, shifts in time. To what extent? He doesn't really talk about. Yeah, because I was wondering if it was like 20 or 30 years or if it was like 10 or 15 minutes. You know, it's like he says that he's very cautious about even looking into time because when you look into the timeline, it changes it irrevocably. If you change something, it changes it irrevocably. He talked about the uh, uh, brothers and sisters experiment, which is about taking a plant and taking it into time. Like say you take a, a plant that has the same parent, two plants that have the same parent. And you take one of these plants back into the time and you kill the plant. Well, or you go back and kill its, its ancestor. Well, the plant that you left in the future or in the present, when you come back, will have different DNA. You see, so you've changed things. Mm-hmm. And this is something that he's very concerned about and cautious about. And he, he's not... Uh, an advocate for monkeying with the timeline. At the same time, how can you have access to that technology and not be a part of it or utilize it or be a functionary with regard to it? These are things that, you know, you're not going to get an answer out of them. And I, and I will state uh, quite frankly that one of the reasons I've been able to get along with him as well uh, as I have is I don't ask him stupid questions. Uh, and now I could ask him stupid questions, <laughs> but I choose not to because I respect his secrecy, his confidentiality. And I, I was uh, getting uh, sky messages from one of my friends in Romania who, who, uh, knows him pretty well and she was really kind of miffed that she never heard from him anymore and i i said you know we're we're i'm i'm very lucky to have learned what i've learned from him if he if he were never to come back into my life i would be much richer for having known him so um some, sometimes you have to be grateful and appreciative for what you know, what you're given. And this in turn will bring you more gifts. Yes, I will. I had not heard from him in years. And he was very, he gave me over three hours of his time. And on the the new website, uh, which was up for general consumption for at over a year, uh, it's now part of the subscriber website, uh, podcast number nine. Uh, I have a three hour plus interview with him, uh, talking about uh, the latest and greatest. But that was the first time he he talked in, in about five years to the public. And that's and that, by the way, is a terrific interview. It's it's fascinating. I, I, I have listened to that twice. Um, one of the things it's long, though, I got to tell you guys, it's long. Um, it isn't just the U.S. and Romania. The, the well, the U.S. 
I guess, and Romania that are doing these kind of experience uh, experiments. Though it, I mean, Japan, Russia, India, um, they all are. You know, it, it's it's not it's not something that is unique unto us, and they're all doing the time experiment. You know, they're 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 looking into the aspect of it. I don't know that 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 they're all using the same technology, but the 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 philosophy and and the the wanting to be able to travel in time is something that all of these countries are looking into and one of the things that that has always upset me is whenever new technology comes comes to the fore no matter what it is the first thing a government wants to know is how can we weaponize it well and of course now I should point out that in this uh, time reactor or uh, time travel theory explained number nine, uh, a device is brought up that David has patented and invented. It's called the temporal tremor detector, which basically it's somewhat similar to a seismic detector, but it can tell when there's time discharges. It can tell us when people are experiencing with time. So it, it is this device which has enabled him to see if they're experiencing, if it's experimenting with time, and then he can go uh, figuratively or metaphorically knock on the door of these countries and say, well, I understand you're experimenting with time. And, oh, who are you? <laughs> of, course, of course, now this has happened in Japan. It's happened in Russia. It's happened in China. China has gotten very, very fuzzy, very funky about the time, he told me. Um, India was where they were the most advanced and he has spent a lot of time in India and he even uh, uh, said that he would like me to meet his colleagues in India uh, he said we could have, they could have some very interesting conversations with him he says you know we could go out to dinner and, and I'm thinking like I don't want to go out to dinner I said I want to go to the lab I'm thinking to myself and then when I talk to him the next time I said, you know, well, is it possible I could go to the lab? He says, oh, yeah, we could arrange that. No security problem. He says, no, no, we could arrange that. Okay, but when that happens is when it happens. It's not like I can, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, have, I have found sure. that, that scientists who are really emerged in science really don't play politics. They're just, they just want to, they just want to learn and grow and develop. Well, but, you know, unfortunately, they can't do it without money. And that's when the government comes in. Well, the government is already there. They are, by and large, employing these scientists. Now, in the case of um, India, they, he wasn't always like, you know, on, in harmony with what they were doing. He said they were sending drones into the past. He didn't like that. Um, he was spending a lot of time there. And then he went back to New Mexico. I think he's been mostly stateside recently. I don't really know. He's only surfaced a tiny bit in the last week and, and has uh, said hello and apologized for being out of touch for so long and said he would uh, review my work because I sent him a link to the website. I've been informing him of every video that I've done. And they've all been sent to him 
but thus far there's been no response. Um, so, you know, do you want me to correct this? Do you want me to change this? And uh, <laughs> I said, okay, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm sure they are okay. They could always be, he did send me actually uh, a whole PDF file of a presentation he had given to a group of us at Montauk in 2010. And uh, although I would say uh, you're going to be much better off watching the videos I presented because what he gave me is going to confuse most people. Uh, although if I, I might, I will post it on the website eventually and, you know, maybe I'll add some explanation to it. Well, you know, when I heard in that interview that, that uh, somebody was sending drones back, it, it occurred to me or I wondered that that might some of the UFOs that we see be drones from our future? Well, that's a very good question. And of course, what one thing David has said, he says, if you uh, study the time reactor and, and you can certainly study it in, in these videos, the, the free videos, uh, yes, it conforms exactly to how a UFO operates. So yes, that's, that's a very good analogy. And the... The real, let me tell you, the, the real uh, next paradigm that I'm moving towards is not time travel as much as time travelers. You see, time travelers, people that actually travel in time, there have been snippets of phenomena associated with time travelers in my work. Not very frequently. There are a lot of people uh, who will, you know, write in and say, yeah, I'm part of this, I'm part of that. They really uh, do have experiences, but they don't have anything tangible to offer. You uh, know, the, the only one I can think of would be St. Germain. Well, St. Germain hasn't written in. Uh, no, there, no. There, there, there is, uh, um, well, St. Germain is a different topic. But um, but the a very different topic, and and maybe I should send you a newsletter that that about Saint Germain, but uh, that I that where he, he kind of enters my uh, radar. But um, the I, I'm talking about like like see we've gone through a cultural or sociological phenomena of back in the eighties and early 90s to some extent there were the men in black um, there were alien abductions there were black helicopters and all these things kind of change and you know then harp gets going and the the next wave is in in my if my experience and intuition are correct it's going to be time travelers now i was doing uh, the recording of a, I think it was called a course. It was a, about 10 hours of uh, audio, video, podcasting with Andrew Bartzies, Douglas Dietrich, and Laura Lee Solomon. And it was all on the subject of time travel. Andrew deals with a lot of time travelers. And he's a very gifted healer. And we were really digging into the subject of, not as time travel, we were getting to the subject of time travelers, and this, unfortunately, whole project was cut across by his, Andrew's video editor, kind of not doing any work, deciding not to do any work. 
And so it's been a scramble for him to find uh, a new one. And video editing is, is, video editors are hard to come by. They're in great demand. Uh, aside from the fact that they're very expensive, they're hard to find. So, um, but at the same time this happened, I felt a whole uh, energy wave cutting across where we were going because we were rapidly advancing upon territory that, you know, wasn't quite ready to be exposed. And um, this is, so, so where time travelers become something that we're more conversant with. And this, this is sort of a, a change of paradigm. It's a change of paradigm. Well, definitely, and and I found that that that, that there is a rhythm. There is um, <clears throat> there's a timing for things, and and when it's not time for something, no matter how hard you push it or try to make it be that time, you can't. Well, yes, and and you can't push it, but what I would say is one of the biggest dangers or drawbacks in this entire subject are people's mental states. The mental states of people who time travel, approach time travel, or say they approach time travel, it, it attracts people whose minds well, I'm not saying that they're not involved in time travel phenomena. Their minds are not um, properly balanced or referenced. And this is a situation. So the most, it behooves everybody to work on balance. And balance, balancing the physical body, the energetic body, and the mental body. Doesn't grounding come in there too? Grounding is, is very much a part of this because um, time, you see, when time begins to shift, uh, people can't hold their thoughts in a linear fashion. So time by its very nature is nonlinear. So when people can't play the linear game, and they become very nonlinear. And being too nonlinear is being crazy. So you have to have a blend of the linear with the nonlinear so that it correlates, is coherent. And this is, is, is not only the challenge for people, it's going to be a, a bigger challenge as time uh, evolves and, and shows a different character or nature to itself the mental aspects of the human being. Now, this is very interesting because this is what happened in the Philadelphia experiment. People, when they were subjected to other dimensionality, they went crazy or they became mentally discombobulated. So this was the whole human factor study that became the Montauk project. So here again, it's, it's almost like, well, people are no different than the Montauk project is as dimensionality begins to manifest people's minds uh, can too often suffer, suffer as a result. 
Well, but they weren't in any way prepared for what was going to happen, too. Well, I don't um, see that any people are any more prepared, except except for the fact that the idea has been is more in the social consciousness than it was in 1943. It's more into the social fabric of consciousness. Does that mean people are any more ready for it? No. In, in one in one way that in one way yes, but then in one way no. I could look at all of my experiences in this. I was never looking to have a time travel experience. It was not something I was seeking. Um, and still, I can't say that I'm seeking it now. But I follow the uh, trail of investigation. And yes, it would be wonderful to see David Anderson's time reactor. And I did ask him one time what was the, the most funniest thing he'd ever seen in his research. I wasn't asking him about the time reactor. He said it was actually seeing people, watching people see the time reactor for the first time and watching uh, in sort of disbelief as they would see reality change and they'd see reality wasn't quite the way they thought it was. It would be an ontological shock uh, and they would actually manifest or see it. Well, in in my perspective and in my opinion, the consciousness of, of a great part of humanity at this point in time has gone through a shift and and is more open to um, different paradigms that are coming. I mean, but but you you also have to understand that the the, the humanity as a whole is having a lot of new paradigms being thrown at them that that in many cases, you know, they don't want to hear. But well, but, new, new paradigms indeed, and uh, I, I would also tell you this, um, and and this was once told to me. Uh, I, you know, it's one of the stories from the Holocaust is, is that the Jews would be put on a train or they would be in a camp and they would be told that, yes, get on the train. You're going to get some marmalade. You're going to eat. And they'd be put on a train and, you know, they were going to a a concentration camp, a death camp or or something of this nature. In other words, they would be told one thing. They'd be offered this to kind of like humor them. And they'd be told anything. You know, they were offered a paradigm, a paradigm of marmalade. So in other words, what people are selling you, uh, whether it be ascension, this, that, or the other thing, hmm, you know, uh, Christians will sell you uh, Armageddon, the apocalypse. Um, they will sell you the end of the world. Um, New Age people will sell you ascension. Some of them will. Um, enlightenment, uh, people sell all sorts of things. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I can't really relate to it too well because I haven't been out there shopping. And uh, people like to believe and like to get excited. And speakers will excite them. And maybe not all of it's, a waste. People do get inspired, but sometimes or too often, uh, you know, I, I'm not too impressed with with the so-called dog and pony shows. Um, 
but in any case, so yeah, there's a lot of data. We're living in new times. It all boils down to the individual and who that individual is, uh, what, where he's going, what he wants, and some, some of this information might suit him, some of it might not. It's all, it's all, it's all relative. But I, I don't like to get people excited about the idea that, you know, it's all happening. <laughs> well, I think it's, from it's happening for them or it's not happening for them, because I, I have seen so many or too many of my friends uh, that, that are more or less my age pass away and they were beautiful people. Uh, but life kind of hits them on the side when we were all least expecting it. Very brilliant, gifted people. So it's it's sort of like okay, well, what, what is this? What does all this stuff mean to them now? They're on the other side, and they're evaluating it um, from a different perspective. Are they looking down and saying, "Boy, you had it nailed better than I did"? Uh, but then they're on the other side, and I'm saying, "Well, you know, maybe you're better off where you are now that you can see all that." You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's it's like I don't know. You know, do they have to come back? I don't know. Um, well, there's only one way you're going to find out. Well, I don't know. There might be other ways to find out. But um, yes, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to assume, uh, assume things and, and to make uh, false assumptions. Like, I, I know that when I would, uh, I guess I, I've bought a house twice in my life and both times I bought the house. I thought, oh, I'm going to be here for about five years, 10 at the most. And no, 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 no. <laughs> it's much longer than that. You know, in other words, you, you, you sort of see something and you have this enthusiasm. Well, I'm going to be this. this, this. No, no. It, it lasts longer. Uh, situations sometimes are not what you think. So people will think all all sorts of things. What is it? They see this in baseball. There's a phrase in baseball in spring training. They say, hope springs eternal. And every team comes out to spring training thinking they can win it all. And, and you know, after a few months of the season, you know, they're kind of, most of the teams are kind of, wow, we're not going anywhere. And they, yeah. they you know, so, uh, you know, it's good to temper and measure your excitement. But anyway, let's go on to the next thing. That's true. You mentioned Mandela's at one point. I did not mention Mandela's. Oh no! In one of the in one of the interviews, Mandela's came up, and the Mandela effect. Yes, and well, being being one who has painted hundreds of Mandela's in no, my life. You're talking about the, Man, the Nelson Mandela effect, which is about time travel. Or are you talking about Mandela's? I was talking about Mandela's because. Okay. 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 I'm sorry. A lot of the um, patterns that I saw um, are patterns that I have painted. So, um, and and that goes back to sacred geometry, which figures into a lot of this other stuff. Okay. Which which was for me fa fascinating because when when I was looking at the bent light cones 
and and how as they move through time with the time tipping light cones yeah tipping yes and and as they moved you know as they moved through time they created a spiral that spiral was a pattern that i have recognized all over the world in 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 ancient carvings and things like that so that so that Apart, something in me resonated to all the material is what I'm saying in ways that weren't scientific. And yet I had seen them and they were familiar to me. And that's kind of like almost a deja vu experience. Well, it is a deja vu experience, I guess, not kind of. And, and in a way, I'm wondering if this whole philosophy in some way, shape or form is already ingrained within our DNA and our memories and that at some point in time after being exposed to it in lots of different ways it suddenly resonates and awakens within us is that a possibility well now that that's a very good way to put it and that's that's that that is a coherent way to put it um, because DNA is a microcosm and everything, you know, for DNA to, like everything that's in the, uh, of course, consciousness of the human being, all made up of DNA and whatnot, all kind kind of forms from a, a bombardment of light from the stars, the sun, and it's all about reaction and response to light. It's reaction and response to the stars, to everything that's out there. So you could say that it's all a microcosm of the macrocosm, but it's all based upon a lot of signals. So when you, when you, when I was talking earlier about the great work, the birthing of the Messiah, the deliverer, the DNA uh, has the potential to, I guess, what you would call meta metamorph uh, to undergo morphogenesis uh, to become greater and more resplendent than in the state that we know it. Not unlike a caterpillar. Caterpillar has what are called imaginal cells. And the caterpillars, the structure of the change, the cells will actually change. So there is infinite potential for the DNA to change. When we have the metaphor or the template of a what would be called a virgin birth of relative perfection, such as the Christ, we have a fully conscious being, a fully awakened being. This is symboled by the Golgotha, which means a skull, which is the place where Christ was uh, crucified. So you have this total awakening of the, uh, the human brain. And you also have what are called the 20, uh, the 48 gene pairs. You know, we have 46 gene pairs. Uh, there is a theory that's um, I've been told is very biologically sound by one of the most knowledgeable people I'd ever known about 
biochemistry and he you know it's like these two of the gene pairs are fused together so we should really have uh 24 gene pairs not 23 gene pairs um i said 46 and 48 i meant chromosomes it would be 24 gene pairs is what we should have instead of 23 so if you can uh split these gene pairs you would have what would be called according to my hypothesis is a superhuman who would be fluid he could be fluid throughout time he could be fluid throughout the dimensions he would be superhuman um he would be christ-like uh in in superhuman say you know somebody that could walk on water somebody that could manifest and unmanifest somebody that could shape shift this is a this is a hypothesis but it is the ultimate template for the uh human attainment well we all have all of that there it's just that it's not active it's the, it's what scientists call junk junk genes or junk yeah junk genes they call them well some scientists don't call them junk genes and and this is why uh Bruce Lipton uh, goes into great detail that, that it's not junk DNA that it, junk DNA that it actually serves a function. But with, with, regardless of what you call it, it's a matter of becoming uh, full on or fully functional uh, with all human potential. Oh, exactly. And, and this this is yes, this is this is really the point. So, but the question is, is does this happen? Does this happen by you know the great glory of magnificence so uh and the benignness of the divinity or does it happen by personal evolution and personal attainment um my experience in this life uh is that sometimes things are given to you but if you don't recognize it and take it you will not have it that opportunity for very long so it usually involves a certain amount of work, a certain amount of attainment. It's not necessarily something that's going to be given to you. Like you might be given a good job in life. You might be given uh, fortunate circumstances by reason of circumstance or your parents. If you don't take advantage of that, you've really, um, it becomes a, a matter of individual recognition and choice. So it's it's not something that's just going to be handed to you. It might be handed to you, but you have to take advantage of it. And so anyway, I, I practice diligently every day uh, towards further attainment in, in the practice of, of Qigong, Taoist Qigong, uh, which means breath work, which means activating your capacity to breathe to the fullest. Just as humans do not use their brain, people do not use their lungs properly. They use their lungs in a very uh, atrophied manner. They're breathing with 5% of their lung capacity or something. So this, is, um, this will actually open the pathways to the brain. It'll make you think better. It'll make you smarter. And so when, when you see people... Uh, eating bad food when they know they shouldn't eat bad food, um, indulging in bad habits when they shouldn't indulge 
in bad habits. You know, it's where is one going with one's life? These these are questions that I certainly have. Oh, good ones. Yeah. But I want to get back to the machine because in many ways it could serve humanity profoundly. Um, medically speaking, I, I, and I'm not talking necessarily about um, traveling in time as much as keeping the human body in stasis so that it, it, it can wait to, to have um, work done on it or, or to keep it in stasis until a cure has been achieved for whatever is ailing it. I mean, there, there are that and the fact that it could provide the, the, the globe with unlimited energy is, I mean, just think of the poverty that it could fix. Just think the, of, of the, the ways it could be used to, to profit mankind, not, not monetarily, but. What, well, what, what the, the, the beauty and glory of, of this uh, time reactor device, what it does tell us is that, Unlimited potential is within striking distance. It offers the hope of unlimited potential. Now, it all becomes a question of access. Um, we've always had poverty on this planet. We've probably got more poverty on this planet than the planet is known, certainly in recorded history. Um, so, and you have to look at who's manifesting this poverty, on what levels. Um, Obviously, the political elite would seem to be uh, manifesting it, possibly harvesting the energy from the tortured souls that suffer poverty. Uh, we, it's, it's hard to evaluate all this and to make and know you're making an accurate decision. Um, what degree of participation do the impoverished have? What have they participated in? These are, these are questions that have to remain in the philosophical realm, of course. Um, and but, but the one thing is this technology offers hope. It offers hope for humanity. But the majority of human, humanity is suffering horribly uh, if you consider the amount of poverty on this planet. So it's, it's sort of been, uh, it's only a small percentage of us that are uh, sort of living above water it's a smaller than less than 50%. And then, and then even smaller than that, it's uh, getting along kind of okay. And uh, smaller than that, it's, you know, really in dominant control financially. So well, issues are uh, long time issues and you know, long well, time it, issues. In a lot of ways though, the knowledge that <clears throat> that this kind of science technology is out there does does in many ways send a message to people that that the power to change is out there the power to grow is out there the power to achieve is out there and and in many ways we create our realities by our perception of it the element of hope comes in here and you know, where there's hope, there's a way. Well, yes. And, and one of the most beautiful things is you could have somebody who's, who's relatively young hearing something about this and it could just turn on their light to 
you know, create their own time reactor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, when I was young, younger, Star Trek hadn't come out yet. And when Star Trek did come out, you know, the doors that opened when you came up on them, their little flip recorders and stuff like that, all of that seemed... um, so so far in the future, it was unbelievable, and and yet today I walk into the mall and the door opens before me and it closes after me and and you know the flip phones, my God, you know we're even beyond those. We actually have phones that can find a stud in the wall and can trace your friends wherever they are and talk to you. Um, so so technology is advancing. Amazingly. And that's only what we know about because, like you said before, technology is easy 15 to 20 years ahead of what we know about. Well, yes. And I would venture to say uh, that if if you were to uh, have watched Star Trek and you were to visit Bell Labs, you might have seen that same technology and even more in Bell Labs at that time in the 1960s. Um, They were very advanced. And, you know, we'd sometimes, you know, Bell Labs was in primarily in New Jersey and, and you would hear uh, on Long Island, you know, people that would work there and stuff and, uh, you know, very advanced stuff. So, um, yes, it's see it all all this technology comes back to distributing it, who gets paid for it, who gets control. It, it becomes a story of politics. And in say in the TV or the TV show Star Trek, you've kind of got this benign uh, society that runs on you know everything's kind of copacetic and you know the only thing that gets stirred up sometimes are these evil Klingons or aliens. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they they don't seem to have uh, you know political issues on that show. Um, except that when they do have the political issues, particularly in the movies, you know, command headquarters is always so damn dumb. And, and, and the only way they can be saved is by Captain Kirk, who has to be a renegade uh, and, and, and a bit of a pirate to to accomplish what he needs to accomplish because headquarters well, is so damn dumb. Well, not only that, but but don't you think that is, it is the renegades that actually do make the breakthroughs? Well, certainly, uh, certainly something to be said for that, of course. I I mean, because they're not controlled. And and unfortunately, when you have governments, then you have control and you're sort of told what to do and how to do it. And 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 and, and, you know, I think the, the, the potential is phenomenal. And if anybody tries to control it. Then, then they limit everybody's potential, and and that's I think you know one of the things that I objected about mind control stuff. But but if from the mind control we understood finally that that what people were suffering from was PTSD, and and there are ways to to help them and to you know it. I, I think that something good comes from almost everything. Well, the one thing I would say about time travel is when time travel surfaces, it it surfaces in conjunction with extreme control, including mind control. And and this shows how much control is on that subject of time 
travel. So yes, while we do have to deal with politics, we also have to deal with mind and mind control. Mind control, however, talking about mind control is not a justification for uh, fostering it and festering it in your own mindset. There's There's been so much expose of mind control, it's not funny. Uh, what we need is people that don't resonate at the level of mind control and can rise above it. I, I think that society as a whole, people are breaking out of that. People are, and, and what they're finding, at least what I'm seeing, is that they're beginning to understand that that the journey is one that is within to self-awareness and then into connecting to the power that's inside of you and then turning on those switches that aren't aren't yet functional well that's beautifully said and it's it's nice to think that thought indeed well it can be found at digitalmontalk.com digitalmontalk.com thank you peter Radio at freedomslips.com. We'll be right back after this message. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop us! They're going to kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings! Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it, Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com, the number one listener supported talk radio 